Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever wondered just how many naturalists can fit into a single podcast episode. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today is going to be very different from a typical episode, because today you're going to hear from not just one guest, or two, or even three, but from, I don't know if you're ready for this, today's episode has 10 guests. All of them are folks who attended the California Naturalist Statewide Conference in Tahoe City back in the beginning of October, some as speakers and others as participants. The idea behind this episode is to give you a condensed version of some of the conference highlights. But with 25 official speakers and around 24 more informal presenters, it was impossible to include all of the great content shared that weekend in one episode. So instead of trying to talk with everyone, I made sure to chat with all of the keynote speakers. So that's Jose Gonzalez, Rihanna Jones, and Opie Kaufman, and also Don Hankins, who was a speaker at the conference and someone I'd actually been wanting to have on the podcast for a long time. Greg Ira, the director of the California Naturalist Program, Brenda Kyle, a lightning round speaker, and then just a few absolute gems of naturalists who were at the conference as participants, including Maribel Garcia, Bruce Deterra, Justin Torres, and Jason Ferreira, whose name you may remember because he's been on the podcast before to teach me about salmon. There's also a little bonus clip of dinner conversation that includes some voices you may recognize if you stick around until the very end of the episode. But because there are so many guests on this episode, you're going to hear about a wide range of topics, including the power of storytelling, traditional ecological knowledge, outdoor equity, some of the ethical questions around ecological restoration, creating the conditions for healing, indigenous stewardship, including cultural burning, what the word consilience means and why it matters, and the kind of community that can arise from a shared love of the land. Before we dive into that, if this assortment of topics sounds interesting to you, there's a good chance we're going to get along. And there are more episodes coming up this season that you won't want to miss, like California amphibians, native plants, dark skies, nature journaling, and so much more. If those topics catch your ear, can you make sure you're following Golden State Naturalist on your favorite listening app? On some apps like Spotify, that means hitting the subscribe button, and on Apple Podcasts, it means hitting the little plus sign in the top right-hand corner of your screen. It'll look like a little check mark if you've already done this. And if you like this content so much that you want more of it, you can become a patron of the show for as little as $4 a month. That gives you access to all kinds of bonus audio and video content, as well as the ability to get your questions asked to the Naturalist I interview. And it really helps me keep making the show. You can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want to know what outdoorsy things I'm up to, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Golden State Naturalist. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. You can sign up for my mailing list on there if you want to, but the truth is I don't know what to do with the mailing list. And I have sent out exactly two emails in the course of about eight months. I'm open to suggestions. Finally, probably the biggest way you can help out the show is by sharing it with friends, family members, coworkers, the local chapter of the Native Plant Society, and anyone who's ever tried to convince you that watching a nature documentary with them would be a great way to spend your Friday night. But now let's get to the episode. If you're not familiar with the California Naturalist Program, here's a little description from their website. 
a statewide program of the University of California's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. The UC California Naturals program is designed to introduce Californians to the wonders of our unique ecology, engage the public in study and stewardship of California's natural communities, and increase community and ecosystem resilience. Their mission is to foster a diverse community of naturalists and promote stewardship of California's environment and natural resources through education and service. So obviously I love them. The way the program works is that the statewide program has local partners all across the state. And the partners offer a 40 plus hour course that people can take to become certified California naturalists. I completed my course last November at FEA Nature Center in the Sacramento area where I live. And taking that course was a major source of inspiration for starting this podcast. There's also a newer branch of the California Naturalist Program called Climate Stewards, which is another certification that's more geared toward climate literacy and resiliency. I can't speak to that one as much because I haven't taken it yet, but I would love to, maybe between seasons sometime. Okay, so that's a little about the organization behind the conference, but let's hear about the conference itself. This year's CalNAT conference was celebrating 10 years of the program, and it was also the first of its kind held since before the pandemic. So it drew participants from all over the state to Grand Lebacan Tahoe, a resort in Tahoe City, which reminded me a bit of some cabins I've stayed in across the Sierra. Cozy, wood paneling, very easy to imagine covered in snow, only occasionally invaded by bears. Story time. A bear really did go into an empty room through a window that was left open during the conference. But remember that bears aren't that different from us. Bears just want snacks. And you have to keep your windows closed if you have snacks or like aromatic garbage. Anyway, the weekend was packed full of meaningful, timely, relevant presentations and workshops. And attended by people I was able to jump right into mealtime conversations with as if I'd known them for years. The whole experience was just incredibly special to me. I hope to share some of that magic with you here on this episode of Golden State Naturalist. The first voice you're going to hear is actually one of the last people I had a chance to talk with at the conference, because he was in motion every single other time I saw him throughout the weekend. I caught up with Greg Ira, director of the California Naturalist Program, right after the closing session. I had about 10 minutes before I had to find my field trip group for the afternoon, so I ran to find Greg, and in an act that may be considered creepy in other circles, asked him to accompany me up a hill into the woods where we could talk in relative quiet. We got our mic situated, and I asked him what he liked best about the conference. I think the, the highlight for me is that we had a very diverse group of speakers mm -hmm. that came together to share their knowledge and their wisdom with us. And I think a common theme that I heard from many of the sessions was not just the sharing of information, not just the sharing of naturalist information or climate information, but the sharing of the concept of having this growth mindset to really push us to think beyond kind of our, our normal practices of looking at our normal perspectives and thinking, how can I do things differently in the future? How can I improve the work that I'm doing? And I think that came across in a lot of the presentations. I really value this focus on each of our ability to learn, grow, and adapt. Maybe you can relate to this. 
Did you grow up in a time when intelligence was seen as fixed, as something we don't have the power to change no matter what we do? I think a lot of us did. But I'm seeing that idea being challenged more frequently all the time. And I think we're going to need this shift, need the mentality that we can grow and adapt in order to be resilient going forward and to address environmental challenges we're facing today. And one of the most powerful tools we have in our adaptability toolbox is ironically something that has been part of human cultures around the world from time immemorial. And that is our ability to tell stories. Brenda Kyle, naturalist and lightning talk speaker, beautifully conveyed the importance of stories and traditional ecological knowledge in a changing world. Can you tell us a little bit about what your talk is going to be about? The title is Tech, Traditional Ecological Knowledge in the Oral Tradition. So it's basically storytelling, you know, storytelling and how stories convey observations, how they convey not just a story, but actual scientific principles. And we have to listen to the stories, as my friend Raging Hawk would say, listen with your inner ear hmm. and look at things with your inner eye. So it's not just being here, it's being everywhere to understand the stories of traditional ecological knowledge and the oral tradition, what they're trying to convey. Why should we continue to rely on stories rather than just tell people scientific facts? What's the, what's the advantage there? Stories convey a sense of place, which is different from location. Hmm. Mm -hmm. okay. We can be here at latitude, whatever we are, and longitude, whatever. That, that is the location. Mm -hmm. Let's come back in three moons. Hmm. Is it the same place? What's going to be different? So stories convey place. They convey emotion. They convey wonder. They convey a way to enter into science that is wonder-driven and gets you to the facts instead of driven to find the facts. Hmm. Sometimes that sense of wonder is, is more important than whatever it is you're trying to find. Stories that I've heard are stories that my father told me, that mm -hmm. I told my daughter, and it's stories that she's heard from her grandparents. And it's, it's the same story. This, that sense of community and belonging and history is important. Um, I hope that people go out and they find their own ancestral roots mm -hmm. um, in their ancestral languages. I do a lot of my talks in English and in Spanish, mm -hmm. and neither one is my ancestral language. Mm -hmm. What's the name of your ancestral language? We are Tepewan. Tepetel is the Nahuatl word for mountain. So Tepewan means mountain dweller. Wow. We self-identify as Odami, the people. The Odami people are from what is now the southern part of Chihuahua, Mexico which sitting here looking at a map, I don't know if I would quite call northwestern Mexico, but definitely to the northwest of the center of Mexico, if that makes sense. Now, some people might hear the idea of reconnecting with our ancestral languages and stories, and they might at first think that that sounds like a step away from progress, like going the wrong direction on a timeline, away from our present reality and the future we're preparing for. But I want to push back on that idea. I think that when we know who we are and where we come from and how our ancestors, however recently or long ago, however near or far away, relied on the land, how they found strength through a reciprocal relationship with the earth, we can actually see a path forward toward the same thing again today. 
toward applying the lessons we learn from the family members who came before us to a world that is rapidly changing. I also want to note that some of us may look back and see things that we're not proud of or even that we're ashamed of in our ancestors. So this isn't always going to be a feel-good activity. But knowing and understanding the whole story and not closing our eyes to the parts that are hard to look at reminds us that our actions can do harm or they can move toward health and healing, or sometimes a messy mix of both. Seeing and understanding the whole story of where we come from empowers us to choose both what to emulate and what to reject. And Brenda made another point that I think really informs how we move forward with this paradigm. One of the things that I am for sure going to say during my lightning talk is, you know, what is a lifetime of toiling over the land, of having intimate knowledge of your space? What is that if it's not field work? Mm. What what else would you call it? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I love that. Make sure to give Brenda a follow on social media at chaparralchick to keep learning. The next person I talked with does field work in all of the ways that Brenda described. Don Hankins is a professor in the geography and planning department at Chico State, where I think he has the actual coolest professor title I've ever heard, pyrogeographer. Don is also Plains Miwok, and he draws on both traditional ecological knowledge and stewardship principles and his university training to care for and make observations about a variety of ecosystems and their interactions with fire. I'm probably way oversimplifying what he does, so I'm going to put some links in the show notes so you can look up some of his published work to learn more. I caught Don shortly after he finished his talk, and I asked him if he could tell me a bit about it for the podcast. The theme of the talk Mm -hmm. was about indigenous stewardship and thinking about not only the history of indigenous stewardship in the Sierra Nevada, but also the application and applicability of indigenous fire to our landscapes today. Mm -hmm. When we all go home and it's a few years have passed, what are you hoping that people will still remember? What's like a key takeaway or two that you want to stick with people? Right. Well, I think one is that fire is part of our landscape. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn to live with fire and indigenous peoples have lived with fire since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. So if we think about that life with fire, in four or five years, hopefully we'll be seeing the scaling of that fire as it comes back to the landscape. And we'll think back to saying, oh, I remember learning about that and mm-hmm. hearing about it. And, you know, now maybe even I'm part of that, right? So almost providing that background information in the context for people to be able to engage yeah, in the future. absolutely. And what do you think that engagement looks like? Like, how can people be helpful for the work that you're doing? Right. Well, there's a lot of ways that people can be helpful in that, you know, indigenous fire and supporting indigenous fire. And it's not just indigenous fire. It's, you know, prescribed fire. It's prescribed fire with cultural leadership. It's culturally informed prescribed burning and then flat out cultural burning. There's lots of different ways to plug in with it. So supporting policy initiatives, supporting people in trying to bring fire back to communities to help with planning of those events, to help with the implementation of those events. So, I I mean, I think the real take-home is is just trying to get people to think about how to engage and be supporters through being a a citizen of the places that they live and in engaging and supporting, like, traditional knowledge of those places, supporting the practitioners who are trying to do that work, be it if they're uh, cultural burners or or not. Mm -hmm. 
If I'm correctly interpreting what Dawn is saying about being a citizen of the place you live, I think that means that you should take living somewhere seriously. Care for it as if your life depends on it and the lives of future generations depend on it. Because ultimately, our lives and the lives of plants and animals around us do depend on it, even if that's not always immediately visible to us. And indigenous people have understood all of this for a long time. So it's also great if you can support their efforts whenever possible. Yeah, and how would you describe the difference for somebody who doesn't know between cultural burning and prescribed burning? Yeah. So cultural burning is really rooted in the traditions of of burning and the traditional connections to, I hate the word resources, but Mm -hmm. for a better word, uh, or lack of a better word, I'll just say resources. So, you know, like where we're recording at right now, I look and I see, you know, blue wild rye, I see some dog bane and, you know, other native plants and those native plants have cultural uses. Mm -hmm. So if I'm burning to enhance the, the rye grass, you know, I'm thinking of, okay, well, how how and why do I want to burn it? You know, what time of year, how does it link to the phenology to get the desired result I want? So if I'm wanting the grass seeds for making cereal grain out of, I'm going to burn at a certain time of year to, to get that outcome. Prescribed burning may not be thinking about that. Prescribed burning may just be focused on fuel reduction. It may be um, thinking about habitat enhancement. Cultural burning will always get the outcomes of what a prescribed burn will get, but prescribed burns will not always get the outcomes that a cultural burn would, would get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when I'm doing cultural burns, usually I'm trying to hit a, a couple of different objectives. You know, one obviously is going to be resource-based. If I'm thinking about the native plants that I want as food plants, but also there's the more holistic view of like beyond the plants that I would come in and gather is also thinking of the, the, the plants that the animals and other relations would need for feeding on or to provide shelter or whatever it is that they need. When you're thinking about implementing those cultural burns, what are some of the factors that you have to consider, you know, when you're putting fire on the landscape? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of different factors that come into play around uh, placing fire back into the landscape and then even just maintaining fire within the landscape. Mm So, you know, if I'm thinking about an initial burn in a place, I'm trying to think, well, where... Where will fire naturally move through the landscape? Where will it naturally extinguish itself within the landscape? Mm -hmm. And what maybe do I have to pay a little bit tighter attention to because it's the first time of putting fire back into Mm -hmm. a place? One of the things I've learned in making other episodes of this podcast, like the fire ecology episode and the giant sequoia episode, is that policies of fire suppression kept fire off of the land for a really long time in California, which built up fuels available to burn. And that, combined with climate change and drought, contributes to these megafires that we're having today. So when Dawn thinks about putting fire on a landscape that hasn't had fire for a long time, those might be some of the things he's talking about having to consider. So in some situations, particularly in like a conifer forest, we may be burning in a place where the really the, the whole understory of the forest is really conifer litter, right? Mm-hmm. We're dealing with pine cones, we're dealing with leaf litter, and there's not really a whole lot else there. So that initial burn may be just to, I like to think about like shaving off, like to imagine a microplane mm-hmm. on the surface of the land, mm-hmm. just taking off a layer to then expose some of the seeds and trying to maintain like a the duff composition and, and that sort of thing so that you're not burning through everything, mm-hmm. but to release the seeds. So then maybe in a few months' time, you see native plants responding and you start to see understory communities start to redevelop. And then the next time you're burning, maybe in that same space, like your fire is behaving a little bit different because the fuels aren't able to carry across that whole place again. Mm-hmm. 
or maybe certain plants are there are now limiting the spread of fire. And I've seen that even in grassland systems mm-hmm. where, you know, we start out with like yellow star thistle dominating and then we end up with native species emerging in different clusters of native species, each have their own time for when they're going to be most receptive to fire. Mm-hmm. So you end up creating, depending on those conditions, like where fire is naturally going to move. Of course, that's all based on the conditions of like the phenology of those plants, their, their cycles of when they're actively growing, when they're uptaking water, when they're setting seed, when they're going dormant. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, I think like indigenous fire tends to focus, but not entirely on the time period when most of nature is kind of shut down, is, is kind of in that, that sleepy mode. So a lot of burning takes place in the, you know, fall to early spring time period when birds aren't nesting, when, mm-hmm. you know, the, the plants aren't actively growing for the most part. Um, but that's not to say that all burns are done during that time period because there are different reasons for those burns to take place. Right. Absolutely. And there's so much consideration for every species that's involved. Right. And like mm-hmm. the type of land and the shape of the land. And it seems like it would take a lifetime to learn that. Right. So, yeah. so what does that look like? How long does it take people to kind of get a <laughs> get a handle on a little bit, you know? Yeah. To... Well, I mean, a person can get some experience, some introductory experience with it through, you know, a couple of burns. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like to to connect people to a single burn opportunity, introduce them to the way the fire moves to that place, but then also come back to that place and look at what happened after that fire. Mm-hmm. You know, what were what were the plants that came back? What were the animals that came back as the indicators of the success of that event? Mm-hmm. And and then again, that's something that I think isn't necessarily common with prescribed fire. Like a lot of times prescribed fire happens and, you know, everybody just kind of walks off and, mm-hmm. and that's it. But with the cultural fire, like you're constantly coming back in, you're looking at the indicators, you're, you know, you're seeing and maybe even reaping the benefits of what that fire created within that place. So, uh, you know, setting fire, having like native bulb plants come up, right? So you can go out and collect Indian potatoes. For her book, Tending the Wild, MCAT Anderson interviewed a lot of indigenous elders from around the state of California. And I want to read something that she learned from those interviews. She says, by using a plant or animal, interacting with it where it lives, and tying your well-being to its existence, you can be intimate with it and understand it. The elders challenged the notion I had grown up with, that one should respect nature by leaving it alone. By showing me that we learn respect through the demands put on us by the great responsibility of using a plant or an animal. I feel like this really echoes what Dawn is talking about here, using the bulb plants for food. When you actually tie your life to the life of the plant and the well-being and the continued existence of the plant, you start to think about it pretty differently. And actively taking care of it and taking care of the landscape becomes more important. And like you're having that relationship with the landscape you're in. And I think that like you can expose other people to that, right? So an initial, you know, one time out in one place gets you the intro, but then you start to add in additional ecosystems and additional places. And Mm -hmm. through that experience, that set of experiences, you start to build your knowledge base around it. Right. And that seems very relationship oriented, right? Because if you're continuing to come back to the land after Mm -hmm. the burns, you're establishing that continued point of communication with the land kind of a conversation. Yeah, it's definitely a communication relationship there uh, with the landscape. And and ultimately, you know, for indigenous peoples, it's that intergenerational process, right? Mm -hmm. It's 
not only across generations where, you know, people can think of their ancestors burning in a place, but also as we start to see more of this fire happening is the connections of grandparents and community members and elders, you know, in general, working with youth and other people to be able to share that common experience. Mm -hmm. And that's really a community building experience. You know, fires are a naturally social thing. You know, you think about sitting around a campfire, like most cultures have that connection to, to being placed around fire. But in, a, in that landscape scale, it's the exact same thing. You know, you're standing around talking, you're communicating with people, you're laughing, you're joking, you're eating food, um, you know, mm -hmm. when you're out there. And uh, it's really a community building exercise. I love that. And last thing, because I don't want to keep you forever, is just where can people learn more about your work? Yeah, well, so I'm I'm based at California State University, Chico. I'm a field director for our ecological reserves also at, at the university. So if folks want to come out and see what some of these burns look like, the ecological reserves are a great place to be able to see that. Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve is about 8,000 acres of land in the wow. foothills north of uh, Chico, north and east of Chico. And I've got some of the publications on online, you know, through my department website, Department of Geography and Planning. But then beyond that, uh, I'm also just, I'll put a little plug in for the Indigenous Stewardship Network, which we've just launched, oh, uh, which is a intertribal um, organization within the state of California to amplify Indigenous stewardship in general, but we are currently more, more fire focused. There isn't a website at the time of recording this, but soon there will be. Nice. And folks can go there and learn and more connect more with maybe tribes in their area or practitioners in their areas that are doing that work. Great. So people can kind of find things you've written before and keep an eye out for that website to come Absolutely. Out. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. It was such a privilege to get to talk to Don. I've been wanting to talk to him for so long, and I learned so much from him just in this short period of time I spent with him. And I know I still have a lot more to learn, so I'm hoping this isn't our last conversation. And I'm not the only one who liked his talk. One of the participants I talked to also mentioned him when we spoke. My name is Maribel Garcia, and I go by she, her, aya pronouns. Great. And then I heard you saying that you have an official title and an unofficial title. So what are those? Yeah, so officially, I work for Climate Corps AmeriCorps as a program manager. And unofficially, I do workshops called the Decolonized Kitchen, where I teach people how to identify native plants and cook with them. Which sounds amazing, and now I need to go follow you. So yeah. what's your what's your Instagram? Uh, native Plantitas. Okay, great. What has been something that's been really kind of either mind-bending or paradigm-shifting or that's been a new idea for you that you've heard so far? I would say something that's really stood out is there was a conversation about indigenous knowledge and environmentalism, which I think is super important. And the speaker was talking about how uh, they do fires in California as a form of stewardship, which harkens back to how my family would also uh, manage their lands, what they call the milpas, which mm -hmm. is like permaculture in English. Uh, but they would do prescribed burns in order to restore the land. But it was really fascinating to hear all the information that goes into doing a fire. You need to think about what plants are blooming uh, during that season. Mm -hmm. What does the geology look like? How far can this fire spread and how does it want to spread? So he was saying that this is a millennia of knowledge that has been passed down and that the communities take it very seriously. And it's a very sacred kind of tradition to do a prescribed burn. So um, I thought that was really fascinating to hear. And then my last question for you was, 
What is maybe a, a really fun moment so far? So the person that I'm sharing a room with made a escape room for naturalists. So I thought that was super cool. Last night, she was just showing me all her props and all the ways that she made like these puzzles for people to figure out and at the same time learn about native flora and species. This person was from Louisiana, so in Louisiana, and that I'm just so excited to see more of her work when she has her her presentation later this evening. But yeah, super cool. That is really fun. Did she make you do it to get breakfast this morning? (laughs) No, but um, yeah, I don't know that. It would have taken me forever to figure out, um, you know, the clues and all of that. But yeah, super cool. For sure, for sure. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Make sure to check out Maribel's work with the Decolonized Kitchen at Native Plantitas on Instagram and see if you can hit up a workshop if you live in or around Oakland. And if you're anything like me, you got super interested when she started talking about milpas. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole reading up on this whole fascinating sustainable agriculture system. And I'll share a link from the Mesoamerican Research Center at UCSB in the show notes in case you want to learn more too. Next, we're going to hear from a few more participants and the conference's keynote speakers. So stick around and we'll be right back after a quick break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now let's hear from some more naturalists. The first guest you're going to hear from in the second half was Saturday night's big speaker, Jose Gonzalez, who is the founder of Latino Outdoors and co-founder of the Outdoors Oath, not to mention an educator with experience all the way from K-12 to the university level. He's an artist, a poet, and an advocate for outdoor equity, and he took the time at the end of a long day to talk with me about his presentation. So the topic and title is around the theme of healing severed connections. And by healing, I mean, what is, what is that work? How does it happen? How does it not happen? Because we use it and know that healing can be a messy process. And yet it's a needed process because without it, we can continue to be and move in the world and be in relationship with each other and the land, perpetuating inequities and trauma. And so it's looking at how the work that many, that all of us do in nature access um, and programming to connect 
communities to the outdoors and naturalist training, all of those can be a component of this process of healing. And so that you can see yourself as a nature, as an outdoor educator, but you're also this network weaver that heals. And this is not me to say like, you should have the training in this, as the same way as an emergency doctor, but rather more, how are we in, in our respective and collective roles aligned to provide more of that healing and at least be attentive to not perpetuate some of that separation and inequities that historically and systemically has been there for a lot of communities. Right. And I think that the thing that really stood out to me, of course, I'm going to mess up the wording, but it was trauma informed and healing centered centered. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I think that that's something that, you know, as an educator myself, as a K-12 educator going through and learning all this trauma informed stuff, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's super important, but we don't always gear ourselves and orient toward healing. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And I I agree. And, And it's again, with all respect to physical physicians, I think about, you know, Unless I think you're injecting regenerative stem cells into a wound, what you're really trying to do is treat the wound, close the wound, provide the space for your body to do the healing that it it can and it does. If you don't do that, then what you're doing is keeping the wound going. And no matter how amazing your body is, it's not going to heal as quickly. So trauma-informed is able to acknowledge this happens, this can happen, this is how it happened. Um, this is how we treat it. And then healing would be what are the conditions that we're setting in space to support that? Because just because you've sewn the wound doesn't automatically mean it heals. If then what you're doing through behaviors, actions, uh, a bunch of other things, you're kind of keeping that uh, going uh, or leaving yourself vulnerable to create more. Or you're getting cut somewhere else yep. at the same time, right? Exactly. Right. And we bleed on others. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so there were so many great takeaways tonight. But in, in let's say, a few years, in five years, yeah. what do you hope that the people who heard you speak tonight will still remember mm. and still hold? I, I think about this idea of being a future ancestor. And so how am I being of service to this work? And so for me, it's less about remembering my name, right, or about getting a plaque somewhere. And being able to think, did what I offer provide something that connects with somebody else's mental model way of approaching the world such that they get to continue and expand and magnify? You know, there can be different levels of seeds there. And sometimes what nurtures it is being able to say, let's provide a little nurturing ground for you, but you're doing the growing. Let's provide a little water knowing you're taking that bold step. Uh, Let me maybe just give you a moment to like protect against the elements, but you're the one that are working through your resilience and sturdiness. And ideally, the reason for that is, I look at these processes, just like the seed, of seeding, rooting, blooming, and fruiting. Because going to being radical in terms of supporting regenerative cycles, I want to not be remembered just for the blooming, because right? like spring is like, let's look at this amazing field now covered in poppies. And like, that's what makes it beautiful. It's one of the things that makes it beautiful. What I also want to know is how are we supporting that cycle so that they can seed and provide more seeds and more opportunities? So t- to quote Pablo Neruda, so that we continue to focus on the spring uh, and not just the flowers. Jose's presentation really was so rich. There were moments of humor and more serious moments. There were facts and data, and then there were metaphors. There really was something for everybody at any phase of their journey to be able to learn and take away. 
To demonstrate this, I'm going to read you a few of the notes that I wrote down while he was speaking. Here we go. What are your imagined selves? Trauma-informed and healing-centered. Your team is functioning like a thriving meadow. We're still embedded in structural relationships of harm. How do we nurture life-affirming models? Budgets are moral documents. Soft on the people, hard on the problem. And I also doodled a mushroom to symbolize regeneration. And I think the last thing I just want to make sure to include is where can people find yeah. you? Where can people find your work and learn more about what you're doing? I think for me, if you're on social media, you can look up Jose Bilingue, uh, J-O-S-E-B-I-L-I-N-G-U-E. And some of that work is public listed there. That's probably the easiest way. And welcome opportunities to connect, knowing that it's also a process. <laughs> and I like to be in community, knowing we're all, of course, constrained in different ways. But I really like to honor that intention. Right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. No, thank you. After I got done talking with Jose, I went back to the dining area. I grabbed a plate. I sat down with a few of my buddies. We chatted for a while. And then I pulled one of them away to talk about his perspective on the conference so far. And you may recognize his voice if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while. Oh, hey, you might remember Jason Ferreira from the Salmon episodes. Hey, how you doing? So good to see you again. Nice to see you. Yeah, we've chatted, but we haven't seen each other in person since then. No, it's been a few, quite a few months. It was it's about January a year. First. Oh. We, I, it was New Year's Day. That's I remember right. Remember, that was the first day of Steelhead season. That's right. Yep. yep. It's been too long. It's been way too long. Yeah, so this has been so fantastic. But I wanted to ask you, going to the conference, getting to see so many cool people talking, what's something that was maybe like shifted your mindset, paradigm shifting or mind bending or something surprising or new for you today? You know, one of the things that was really just changed my perspective or really made me think was one of the speakers was talking about after fires, how do we choose what we put back? Mm. What are we preserving back to? So do we put the same trees that were burned or do we let nature run its natural course? And then you'll get you know, scrub, and then, you know, woody oak, and then let it naturally succeed? How far back in time do we want to go to what is normal or what we remember? So that was really thought-provoking for me. That got philosophical. Really that fast. That was very interesting. Really fast, yeah. 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 And also, if you just leave it alone, it might be some invasive plant, right? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. No, that was cool. Yeah. I really like talking about that. Okay, so that was the most uh, paradigm-shifting. Yes, what was maybe a really fun moment? So, besides seeing you? Oh, okay, then we're cutting the tape there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, getting, to, getting to see so many people that I respect, yeah. that I've seen them work or either on social media or at other conferences and getting to spend quality time with them. Yeah. You know, the, the informal learning mm-hmm. is so important. And I love that aspect of conferences. Yeah. And... Yeah, so getting to see everybody and listening and saying, you know what, I'm going to steal that. I'm yeah. going to take that idea. And I, yeah, that's you know? the whole point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's always the best part of these things for me. I agree. I, I honestly, like, didn't anticipate how fun that was going to be. Like, that has been such a highlight for me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's the after, the after the learning, learning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. You're welcome. Come see me again soon. Yes, salmon, salmon season coming salmon up. Salmon season in Let's about do it. three, four Three weeks. weeks. It's been so much more than three or four weeks, and I still haven't made it out to the American River to see Jason. I need to work on that. 
Okay, you ready for the next keynote speaker? She had some pressing business that she needed to attend to, but she still took some time to sit and chat with me. And I super appreciate her because she had great things to tell me about. My name is Rihanna Jones and my pronouns are she and her. I am the environmental director of the Washoe Tribe Environmental Protection Department. And so your talk today was related to that. What was what was your talk about? Today we talked about the Myala Water Restoration Project with our new project manager, Mark Laura. The Myala Water Restoration Project has been in the works for 20 years. It's a stewardship agreement with the U.S. Forest Service that allows Washoe Tribe to manage Forest Service lands that have historical Washoe presence in a traditional manner using cultural and traditional methods. When people leave and they go home, and it's a few years have passed, what do you hope people will remember from your talk? That this project was started. So hopefully when they come back to the Tahoe Basin and they're in Meeks Bay, it rings a bell. It's like, oh, let me go check on the progress of this 20-year project and see how far they've come, if there's been success, if the meadow's been thinned, if we can see a bunch of these culturally significant plants that they talked about bringing up. Nice. And is that something people can go and visit and can they walk around there? Yeah. So um, Meeks Bay Resort and Meeks Meadow, the whole area is a traditional summer camp for the Washoe tribe, but it's owned by the Forest Service. So there is a resort there that's open to the public. There's the Meeks Bay Trailhead that leads into Desolation Wilderness. It's a public trail. There are private homes on the other side, but the meadow is Forest Service land. You can go into the meadow and walk around. There has been past thinning and clear cutting in the meadow, so it is very uneven and kind Mm -hmm. of unstable, Mm -hmm. but it is open to the public. We plan on putting up some signs and letting them know that we're gonna start doing work here. And then, you know, having more access and presence for the Washoe tribe there you know just hoping people will come by and ask questions and be like if you want to be involved let us know like we always need volunteers to cut down those trees (laughs) oh that's really good to know that's really good to know um so come and visit and help out just watch your step yes okay (laughs) (laughs) okay good to know what would you hope that you know maybe if people don't live in this area and maybe even if they don't come and visit what do you think is a principle that you hope people do take home with them and maybe apply to their own lives I think the biggest one, and and this, you know, doesn't have much to do with the project or even indigenous people, but don't use plastic water bottles. Mm. Um, I think microplastics are a huge issue for Mm -hmm. the lake. Beach cleaning, we can still find them in the meadow. Mm. Uh, Bears will eat them and then they'll poop them out in the meadow Mm. and then we have to come across that. Mm -hmm. So reducing plastic, I think, is really important. With respect to tourism and people who aren't from here, I would also say that, you know, any place you visit that you're on somebody's traditional homeland Mm -hmm. and having that respect for not only that community, but for the nature, the natural beauty of the area, and you know, hoping that they would want to conserve it and want to do better, whether it's volunteering for projects in this area, making a donation to environmental agencies in this area. But if it's a place that people continue to come back and visit and they like coming here, it's like, well, what are you doing to help protect this area as well? Right. Something that came up, we spoke at the Tourism Cares meeting conference a while back, and trying to change the language of taking a vacation. People are taking a vacation. It's like, well, what are you taking? I understand you Mm. want to be relaxed, but it's like, how can we switch that to be like, not that you're giving a vacation, but, you know, giving back to the community and the area while you're also enjoying its natural beauty. That's a really great paradigm shift. I've never, literally never examined the language on that before. That's fantastic. I related to this so strongly. I grew up in the Napa Valley, which obviously is a major tourist destination, and no one in my family is in the wine industry, but I come from a long line of stonemasons and carpenters and farmers and people who cared about the place and taught me to care about it too. And while a lot of the tourists there are super respectful 
I can also comment from personal experience that there's a particular kind of pain to seeing a place that you love not be loved and respected by people who are visiting it. I would imagine this feeling is only amplified if instead of your family being somewhere for a hundred years, they've been there for more than 10,000 years. Now we're really starting to think about it. It's like, well, you know, tourism is such a big deal in Tahoe and it does have a detrimental effect on on the area with respect to dog poop bags, mm. people illegal camping, mm -hmm. plastic water bottles, plastic bags, microplastics in the lake. You know, a lot of accommodations are made for tourism. Tourism, of course, supports the economy here, but we also need to find other ways to support the economy and have ecotourism that supports the area and the natural beauty of the area as well. So I think maybe, I don't know if it's 13 or 17 species of non-native fish are stocked for recreation fishing, but they outcompete the Lahontan cutthroat trout, which is a native species and a cultural species to the Washoe tribe, and something we're making, you know, big efforts on to bring back. Other, other species are also suffering, and I think, you know, having additional marinas, additional boats are all detrimental to the lake. Mm -hmm. So finding a way for, whether it be all vehicles in the Tahoe Basin have to be electric or all buses are electric or boats have to now be electric. Big steps need to be made to start considering climate, tourism, the carrying capacity of the lake and how we can protect this area and keep it sustainable to have tourism and tourists come here for, you know, many generations to come. That's fantastic because a lot of us want to keep enjoying it. And right. so it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is one, leave no trace, yes. right? Be responsible when you yes. visit somewhere. It's, it's not your home. Somebody does live yes. there. And, you know, support good causes while you're there. Right. Is one of those yet? Are there any sort of ecotourism options where Indigenous people are leading those that we could support people who are leading those? So the Meeks Bay Resort, the Washoe Tribe is a concessionaires. And, you know, part of the reason why I think that's important for the Washoe Tribe to be able to run that business, even though it's on Forest Service land, is, again, just reestablishing that presence. So that uh, is up for bid again, I think mm -hmm. this next year, but we hope to uh, get the bid again yeah. so we can start incorporating more of that. Having plant walks through Meeks Meadow, talking about the project, you know, working on Meeks Creek with planting willow poles to bring back the coyote willow that's used for basket making. So we're still early on in thinking about this. It's gonna take collaboration from multiple Washoe tribe departments, environmental, cultural, our Washoe Development Corporation who runs the resort, as well as our environmental partners, um, you know, to allow us to lead these walks, have more responsibility and more stewardship in the area. Because um, bringing other people on, you know, there's also liability issues sure. involved and we're still early in figuring it all out and seeing how we can make it more sustainable and have that resort, um, you know, while still accommodating to tourists, but also teaching about the area and the importance of restoration and sustainability. That's so great. And I really, that is a lot of work. And I really hope that you guys are able to do it because I would 100% go on one of those walks. <laughs> yes, totally. Last thing is I just want to ask, where can people go to find out more about your work? So um, the Washoe Tribe website, I think it's washoetribe.us. I checked and it is washoetribe.us. There's also the Gatekeepers Museum in Tahoe City. They have a lot of Washoe Tribe history. The Cultural Resources Department in Gardnerville, it, there's just a wealth of information. They have you know, recorded history, books, references. There's some signage around Lake Tahoe, and that's something we're working on as well, mm -hmm. including more interpretive signage that includes Washoe Tribe history and presence. It's like this was a traditional summer home for the Washoe, where the Washoe's held this type of summer activity here. Taylor Creek is one of those. There's been talks for years about having a, a cultural interpretation center there. It's still 
you know, an idea that we hope to have someday and there is some signage going on around there. And then if we have any any projects at Meeks Bay, Meeks Meadow, we try and alert the community, put out flyers, public outreach, that sort of thing. So find you online. Yes. Keep, oh, yeah. yeah, research. Google my name. Go, yes, do it. I did it. <laughs> and you like, find a lot yeah, of good so stuff. I can say the Living with Fire podcast Great. Um, has some information. Yeah, and you, you know, anyone can call us or reach out to the department if they have questions or if they'd like to collaborate on a project. Um, we're always willing to listen and try and work with more environmental partners. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. The next person you're going to hear from is Justin Torres. He's a naturalist in the LA area who works with formerly incarcerated youth. I got a chance to talk to him, but I didn't get a chance to record an interview with him. So the audio that you're going to hear is actually from a videographer named Ethan Ireland who works for UCANR. So thanks to Ethan for sharing that audio. And I did check in with Justin and make sure it was okay for me to use this. So here's just a little bit from Justin. Yeah, so this is my first California Naturalist Conference. I got my naturalist certification at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, the only reason that that was made accessible is because, you know, organizations in the LA area that care about, you know, bringing like um, underserved communities to the forefront, like they, they waived my fee. And, you know, they saw me as someone who does work in the community and, you know, they're like, okay, you know, Justin, like, we have this for you, we have this available for you, like, take it. And I did, you know, and then this is, like, the first conference I had, I had ever heard of. I just got the email. I, you know, I learned a lot during the, the Cal Naturalist training that, you know, I take with me uh, in my work with my youth. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go, you know, and, like, and, like, I'm from L.A. and I'm just used to always being around, like, people of color, right? And it, was, it wasn't really till I got like closer and closer to the to the conference that I was like, oh, man, it's, it's going to be a lot of white folk. You know, it's going to be a lot or a, like a little a different than what I know. Um, so I was very interested and curious um, to what it was going to look like. And then once I saw representation of not only, um, you know, people that I knew, like people that I actually know as well as people that like, looked like me, talked like me, and were talking about subjects that mattered to me. Kind of the, you know, like, the, the sea of whiteness was like, all right, you know, like, if they can sit here and, like, listen, like, all right, cool, you know, that's, that's, that's cool, you know, like, I like it, I'm with it, um, and I'm, I'm really appreciative of uh, the space that was given and taken at the conference by PLC folks. One of the things that Greg Ira mentioned right at the end of the conference is that even though CalNet is diversifying and the conference is more diverse than ever, the audience breakdown still doesn't quite represent the breakdown of the population of California. But I appreciate Justin braving the discomfort of being in a different situation from what he's used to, because everyone deserves access to the outdoors and information about it. Plus, I just appreciated talking to Justin and getting to know him a tiny bit. Okay, are you ready for the final keynote speaker? My name is Obi Kaufman. I'm the author of the California Field Atlas. So I tracked down Obi at the end of what was easily a 12-hour day on Saturday to have this conversation with him. And he very graciously agreed to sit down with me. If you're not familiar with his work, Obi is a naturalist and eco-philosopher who has written not one, but four highly regarded regional bestsellers, including the California Field Atlas, 
the state of water, understanding California's most precious resource, the forests of California, and the coast of California, both of those latter ones being additional California field atlases. The Field Atlas is a genre that Obi invented, and these books are gorgeous. They're composed of a mixture of ingenious watercolor maps that portray things like the distribution of vernal pools across the state, climate types, mountain ranges, and so much more, right alongside illustrations of various species found around California, poetic descriptions and observations about the natural world, and scientific facts and descriptions. And also, now that I've met Obi, I read all of this in his voice in my head. It's like my own little audiobook read by the author. But the thing he's about to say is probably the thing I relate to most out of all of it. I have spent my whole life as a Californian learning, I hope, how to be more from this place. To listen and acknowledge patterns in nature and by nature, I mean nature with a big N, not nature with a little N, okay? Nature, I don't believe, is something that you go to, something that is commodified, something that's put behind the fence of a national monument, say, right? But the nature that is around me. There are a lot of really interesting concepts going on right here, but the one that I want to point out is the idea of being from somewhere. Usually we think of this in the sense of you either are or are not from a place. It's a simple yes and no. So I think it's really interesting that Obi says he wants to be more from here. And to examine what it means to be more or less from a place rather than simply from or not from a place. And I kind of wonder if in this paradigm being more from a place is about that intimacy and the relationship with the land like Don Hankins was talking about earlier, deeply knowing and caring for the place where you live as if it's both a loved one and a lifeline. Because of course, that's exactly what it is. Well, I've been touring these books for a long time, up and down the state, right? From Crescent City to San Diego, over to Fresno, Joshua Tree, Truckee, wherever, wherever you wanna go. And I've, I've really found two things, one, is that there's not a single person in California who wants a degraded environment, okay? Mm -hmm. And two, the, the, the subtitle of my second book was uh, The State of Water, Understanding California's Most Precious Resource, as if water the thing is our most precious resource. It's not. Our most precious resource is the ability to trust each other with a story, mm. trust each other at all. There's just so much polarization, divisive rhetoric that 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 is, absolutely driven by uh, corporate agendas, if you will. Okay, so busting through that, listening, doing very naturally the thing that humans do is just like by looking at e into each other's eyes, mm -hmm. speaking each other's truth to power, mm -hmm. truth to whoever, I'll talk truth to whoever wants to listen, not just power, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, that that we can't help but form community. And here at the California Naturalist Conference, the 10th annual, uh, I had gleaned the community before, right? Working with Adina Marinlander. Side note, Adina Marylander is the founding director of the California Naturalist Program, and she still helps out with the Climate Stewards Program. Working with Gregory Ira, working with so many 
here, I find that, wow, this is really a, a moment of networking that feels consilient in character. And what I mean by that is that this is where different disciplines come together under the same roof. Consilience is a theory known in the sciences of like how to break down the silence between the, the, the disciplines, between the molecular biology and the evolutionary biology. The, the consilience of those two is the connective, the intellectual connective rhetoric between them, the, the dialectic broken down and that is happening here, and I feel at home because of it. Especially me bringing this X Factor in, this other great school of human learning, namely the humanities, the visual arts, right? This thing that is aesthetic in nature, which is a problematic philosophy for the natural scientists have yet to touch it. We're getting there because, because scientists are people too. And, and they, have, they have human feelings. They understand what meaning is. And yet the scientific method is so, so successful because it is so stringent. Mm-hmm. It, and while I believe that science itself is a methodology that can hold all of our philosophies eventually, you know, I mean, I'd go so far as to say, I, I believe that free will is just biology that hasn't been discovered yet. Right. Like, like we can get there. We just haven't invented those experiments yet. And that's on its way. And so when I hear people like, uh, today I listened to Patricia Maloney's research with uh, the Tahoe Environmental Research Center when she is talking about the importance of gene flow between populations of sugar pine in the Tahoe Basin. So like there is a culling effect going on in processes related to you know, atmospheric breakdown, as it were. And the end result of which, especially in our arboreal habitats, is is far from being certain or Mm -hmm. determined, right? We're going to figure this out. And and that sparked ideas in me as a student of evolutionary biology, where where I wonder about patterns inside the deep past. Mm. You know, beginning about 1,000 years and even going to the beginning of the Holocene, we had epochs of extreme drought Mm -hmm. uh, that would last for centuries. Sorry about the background noise in this segment, but I gotta say, who am I to stop people from having a good time? It's great. And that leads to uh, the scientist David Ackerley, who who followed up Maloney's presentation with some really interesting data. Tree pollen collected in strata from the bottom of Clear Lake about how conifer habitat transitioned to oak woodland at the beginning of the Holocene. And his question was ethical in nature. Mm-hmm. And that was surprising to me, that, that ethical question, because that, that, that's my territory. Mm-hmm. And he tried to address it. And I thought, I thought that he did it very confidently, framing it in terms of what is good and what is bad, largely being a human value. What is the character of the Anthropocene going mm-hmm. forward afterwards, after what may or may not be ecological collapse. So we began that conversation and that was, that was fantastic. Then of course we went into uh, Dan Hankins. Don Hankins. Yeah. Don Hankins. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. And the uh, indigenous stewardship network of of, Mm -hmm. of putting good fire back into the landscape, which is a conversation that will be uh, infinitely more relevant as time goes on. And, 
and the presentations just kept rolling mm -hmm. out from there. So I yeah. learned a tremendous amount today just from from the um, uh, engaging community. And I guess that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, the bottom line is like the miracle that is this conversation to yeah. be had. Mm -hmm. And there is something in the power of our continued conversation. Keeping the talk going is in itself intrinsically an act of conservation, which is a fascinating perspective. And because it gets to the heart of what it is to be from California, what we have this miracle to steward that, that these systems have yet to collapse. And we have to be very careful, of course, to not condemn in the age of so much climate grief and climate anxiety mm -hmm. and this pervading pathos uh, to not condemn that which has not yet died to death already. Mm -hmm. And stewarding that miracle is best evidenced by the conversations that were had here today. Yeah. I mean, for me, that was so incredibly rich. Like, yeah. not only to get to hear these speakers, but then to get to talk to people like you and oh, Cliff. You. Okay, this is so embarrassing. I meant to say Griff because I had eaten dinner with Obi and Griff Griffith, who you might have seen on social media from Humboldt Redwood State Parks. Anyways, Griff. I meant to say Griff. But I drove up with my friend Cliff. So I was just all messed up. Yeah. And just sitting at the table and being part of that conversation. Thank and you, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was very cool. And I think what that reminds me of is this idea of, of what love is, mm. right? And mm. we talk about climate grief. Well, grief is just love, mm. right? And we, I think that by having those sustained conversations that you're talking about, we're loving this place. And whether or not that, that love can avoid this climate disaster, it still matters, at least in my human subjective that's construct. That's beautiful, Michelle. That's beautiful. You know, I mean, I was going to start my opening, my my talk tomorrow at the closing ceremony with the idea of love. So it's funny mm. that you bring it up now. The first line to my first book in the California Fieldhouse is that this is a love story. And there's a unifying Absolutely. factor here of love, that, yeah. that, that very unproblematic concept mm -hmm. that is very difficult to define. And we have yet to even attempt to do it scientifically mm -hmm. to define what love is right i mean we're giving it our best stab with words like words is like life mm. what is life mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a biological life we kind of have we kind of have a working definition right there is more unknown than there is is known. Mm -hmm. what we don't know dwarfs what we do yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so hey, much for sitting so here and chatting about it with thank me. Thank you. Right I appreciate on. it. Super fun. Right, right on. Okay, so I realized this wasn't nearly enough Obi Kaufman, so I want you to know that you can hear more from him by checking out his podcast, which I have been listening to religiously. I'm going to read you the description because it captures the essence of the show so well. Place and Purpose is a new video podcast hosted by Greg Saris and Obi Kaufman, two esteemed chroniclers of California's ancient wonders. In this podcast, they explore the deepest questions of hope, 
culture, beauty, justice, time, and ecology. Recorded and broadcast live once per month, themes of the series revolve around the passing seasons and reflect on whether or not so many patterns of the past are unraveling in the wake of a fast-approaching future. You're invited to join the discussion with Greg and Obi as they engage in confronting the greatest challenges and opportunities of our day from the premise that the remedy to these conundrums exists inside the wisdom of the ancestors, that our collective recovery is written across the land and lives inside the stories that are still to be told. I love this podcast for so many reasons, but mostly because I always feel like my perspective has expanded after listening to it and that I've just gotten to hang out with the absolute exact kind of people that I want to hang out with all the time. Also, side note, I love that the themes of Place and Purpose just exactly match the themes of this episode. So if you've enjoyed this episode, definitely don't miss it. You can either watch the show on YouTube or listen wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, there's just one more person I want you to hear from today. He's someone I met on Sunday on the post-conference field trip I attended, which was a hike with Obi Kaufman in Martis Valley, just north of Lake Tahoe. Hi, I'm Bruce Deterra. And what drew you to this conference? Well, I'm a brand new Cal naturalist, uh, so I got notified about this, and I thought how exciting it is to do that. And I'd also just recently read Obi Kaufman's new book, The Coast of California, nice. and I had the good fortune of being in Jenner for a weekend getaway uh, where I read it. So it really resonated. Oh, and then yeah. I saw that Obi's leading a hike and he was giving a talk. And I thought, oh, I've got to go to the conference. And it was so good. And right? it, was, it was It was so awesome. It, it, was, it was unbelievable, the presentations that we had. There was astounding across so many important topics that resonate with, with everything in our lives, really. Absolutely. Yeah. What was something, I know it's impossible to choose, but maybe just one thing that was thought-provoking or paradigm-shifting for you from the conference? I, I, I'm not quite sure it's paradigm-shifting for me, but it really brought brought home something I've known for a long time, but in a real tangible way, mm -hmm. in a real emotional way, um, is, is basically the plight of the First Peoples, the Native Americans and the people's lands that we all live on. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I also, when we've done some of our conferences and things, do land acknowledgement, mm -hmm. And it's like this really brought brought home and, and the and the just ongoing scale of the trauma that's been caused and um, and it's hard to even fathom how do, how do you write mm -hmm. such a wrong um, right. so I mean that it didn't shift the paradigm because I always knew it was horrible right um, and as I've you know I'm 65 now so I've learned more. And it makes me angry at the schooling I had right. that I didn't know these things when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And to discover it now, it's just like, oh, my God, all these places um, that I've been to and that these parks and names and then discovering these people of the places that were named after were just horrid individuals yeah. in, the, in that. So I mean, that's not the kind of paradigm shift I would want, but it's necessary. It and is, I think yeah. it has, that has to happen throughout our, our communities. Yeah. Um, and then we and we collectively need to find a way to take responsibility and make that right, right, and, and change the future. And that was one of the things that was talked about a lot: rights and responsibilities. Yes. What Bruce said here is reflective of much of the conference in general, in that speakers didn't shy away from difficult truths, but they also offered ways to think about action-oriented healing, justice, and reconciliation, and how we can accomplish those ends by doing right by both people and land. Last question for yes. you. What was something fun? Oh, the whole conf the 
the presentations that we had and they were back to back, you know, like back, lots and lots and lots of- It was packed in. It was so, so packed in. So packed in, so informative in hearing all the talks and how we're all part of the earth. We have responsibility. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. It's just like really affirming. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel yeah. the same so way. So it's really, it's pr pr pretty awesome. I'm really glad I've gone to hundreds of conferences yeah. over my career and other things. Mm -hmm. Nothing as good as this and what an oh, incredible yeah. group of people. It really yeah, was. It was astounding. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. I feel very fortunate to have been able to attend a conference that expanded my thinking so much and connected me with such a beautiful community that I hope to be part of for years to come. I want to say thank you to everyone from the CalNAT team for making this event happen, including Greg Ira and Elliot Frutel, both of whom have also just been extremely supportive of this podcast since the beginning, and Sarah Mae Nelson, Pamela Burns, and Karen Utsumi. Thank you to everyone who listened to me talk about my podcast at the community's practice session, to my friend Tammy for helping me set up my table, and to everyone who gave me ideas for future episodes. Thank you to all of the speakers who presented at the conference. Even if I didn't have a chance to talk with you, I learned so much from you and appreciate your expertise. And of course, thank you to everyone who trusted me with your voice and your message on this episode. I had almost three times the amount of audio I could use in one episode, so I had to trim a lot of things way, way down, and I hope that I've still managed to capture some essential part of your message despite the trim. If I got something wrong, I hope you'll do me the honor of letting me know so that I can fix it. One quick announcement is that Greg says potential partners, so like community organizations engaged in education or service type programs, should reach out if they want to offer a CalNAT or Climate Stewards course. And anybody who's looking to become a certified California naturalist, this is a really good time to start looking for a course because a lot of them start after the new year. Something interesting from my week is that my husband and I finally had to replace our very sketchy old car from 2005 that was deemed unsafe to drive long distances by our mechanic, which meant that we spent a lot of hours inside a car dealership, and it turns out there are not many places I enjoy less than a car dealership. On the plus side, we can now go a lot of places with significantly less mortal terror. Okay, don't forget to stick around until after the song, which is called I Don't Know by Grapes, by the way, and the Creative Commons license for that is in the show notes. I'll see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. They're better than trainings, like like yes. state trainings and stuff, because you go in there with your colleagues and you exchange some information. But it's not, it's like a, it's like a, it's like the Mount Wines in Santa Monica Mountains. You know, they're breeding with each other. So, so it's like <laughs> right, you get less right. genetic diversity. But when you come to conferences, I'm not gonna read too far into that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know. I usually tell people, uh, like, can you imagine being a mountain lion in, in Santa Monica, and you go you go into tender, and it's your grandpa's your best match, <laughs> and you have to date your grandpa. But um, but when you go to conferences like this, you get people from nonprofits and mm -hmm. and like independent people, like your friend that you brought. What was his name again? Griff. Uh, Cliff. Cliff. You're Griff. I mean, he's Griff. <laughs> wow, he's the only Griff he's I've ever Cliff met. Cliff, and you're Griff. Okay. I cannot believe I did that twice. So, so you get all these different inputs, and I think that's where the real like ideas come from. I always get like so many more ideas from conferences. Cross pollination. Than I do. Yeah. Cross yeah. So when you go when you go to a training, there's a specific goal in mind. At a conference, it's just meant to be open your mind, like yeah. you know, yeah. 
That's good. Word. For me, I always look at it like I'm going to go see my people. Yeah. You know, people who think like me, or you know, relatively. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always like you have an overlap somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. It's like camaraderie in a way that you don't normally get. I, I would say interpret is, pretty, is a pretty lonely job. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're out there by yourself. Yeah. You know, with strangers mm-hmm. but you never really get to go back and be like you know what you know until you come here and you say oh my gosh you have that that opportunity to vent to gain new information so yeah being with my peeps is the best part of the conferences I will go to a conference in a second yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean great dinner conversation great lunch conversation great breakfast conversation yeah. like that's been one of the highlights for me just yeah. like it's been fantastic yeah mm-hmm. totally and whether I'm a fly on the wall or actually contributing something like either way I don't even care yeah. like it's just great yeah. so that was Griff Griffith Michael Hawk and Jason Ferreira okay see you next time bye